0: Welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. As ever, I'm Chris Ratcliffe. I'm with Martin Spain. This is episode 22 of the podcast that likes to discuss cars and films and all that good stuff. Today, we're going to be looking at two Netflix racing documentaries. But first, we had a tweet in the week from a Mr. Kermode of uh, Southampton. So in our last episode, where we do our little get-togethers, We went through a list that Mark Kermode, the esteemed movie critic and something of an idol of, I think, both of us, going through a list of car films that he recommended, and we kind of got two of our films mixed up with each other. Specifically, the crash that we referred to, the Oscar winner, starring the man from There's Something About Mary and some other people wasn't actually the one that he was talking about in his list, which is David Cronenberg's crash about people who get sexually aroused from car crashes. In Penance, I will ask anybody who has BBC iPlayer access to go on there and find Mark Kermode's Secrets of Cinema series, which is now f- the whole thing, the whole runs on iPlayer. So if you want to go through a documentary series about heist films and sci-fi films and spy films and Oscar winners and all that good stuff, go and check that out. He does all of this fantastically well and we apologise profusely to the flappy-handed, bequiffed good doctor. Also, following on from our last episode, we had our friend Matt Lange point us at a Barn Find special. And
1: my God, this is a proper proper barn find yeah I really love reading about this the Thorndike special barn find and it is a genuine barn find like you say a found in absolute tatters paid bobbins for it and fixed it up <laughs> and turned it back into a special car it's back to its former glory um, we're going to put a link to this in the show notes uh, but it's a it's a fun story and a genuine a genuine barn find which you don't really see anymore it's kind of become a cliche of mm. finding, you know, some super rare Ferrari or Maserati or race car in a barn covered in bird droppings. And it just doesn't really happen all that much <laughs> anymore. But this this is a genuinely interesting story about the Thorndike special that we mentioned in last week's pod. Worth a read. So check it out and the link will be in the show notes. Speaking of, of that barn find, actually. So I don't think we actually
0: mentioned it in the last episode. It's a car called an Apollo GT. And there's only 88 of these ever built. So it's a one of 88 car that's probably the only one that anybody knows anything about. And it managed to just vanish into into a barn in northern Michigan, of all places. So it's actually rarer than a
1: McLaren F1. Yeah, there can't be many of those 88 left now, I would imagine. If they made 88, there's probably only 44 left running. Unfortunately, America doesn't have uh, the same thing that we do, that howmanyleft.co.uk. Mm. Um, so you can't tell how many of a certain type of car are left on the road for their stuff. But it's still very, very interesting. And not my taste in terms of, of looks. It's a little swollen and, and the proportions are slightly off for me. Mm. But I appreciate the the work that went into restoring it.
0: And one thing as well, just having a read of this, I've watched some videos in, in the past, even TV shows, about identifying movie props and authenticating them specifically. So looking for bits of damage, looking for little nicks or scratches or bits of stitching or something that you can positively identify a prop against a replica of that prop, even if it's a really, really good one. And what's quite interesting with this is that it actually goes through that same process. It's like somebody's gone, I wonder if it's the Lovebug one. And then they've kind of looked at it and gone, actually, this all kind of makes sense. So go and have a look, go and watch um, the Lovebug because it was a nice not out trip and then read about the car that was featured in it and then got lost in a barn. However, doing us all a favour is Marshall Pruitt, God bless him. He's undertaken probably one
1: of the most thankless jobs out there, which is... A 19th anniversary guide to Driven, which we have covered on the podcast previously. Uh, Chris has actually titled this Drivel in our show notes, which is probably fair enough. That's not Marshall <laughs> Pruitt's guide. That's the film itself. Um, Now, I used to have a soft spot for this movie uh, (laughs) for indefensible reasons, and my (laughs) rewatch for the podcast, uh, the scales fell from my eyes, and I realised it was absolute garbage. (laughs) And Mr. Pruitt's 19th anniversary guide goes through practically frame by frame, highlighting all of the inaccuracies. I found it particularly interesting (laughs) and amusing that all of the tracks are cut together from all sorts of different places and they jump around countries and circuits. Every now and then there'll be a vague bit of verisimilitude and then it will jump about again. It's, It's deeply cutting and sarcastic and a far better review and indictment of the movie than I could ever do. So I urge you all to read this. Even if you've never seen Driven, A, count yourself lucky because it's awful, but B, go and read this to find out just how awful it is. It's a marvel of writing and, you know, full credit to him for sitting through it all the way. It's not an easy film to watch if you're a racing fan, let's be honest. The the thing is, though,
0: if you. He- it's not a question of just sitting through it because it's like 100 minutes of your life that you'll never get back. But to write and edit and screen grab and go into the detail that he's gone into. Yes. I mean, how much time must he have put into that? It's it's the work of... I, mean, well, I was going to say it's a labour of love, but it's. I, I'm speechless at the amount of work and effort that's gone into it for... I mean, talk about making a s- silk purse out of a
1: ourselves. Yes, that's, that's fair. Uh, my hat is doffed to you, Mr. Pruitt. That's uh, a marvellous bit of work. <laughs> As you can tell there's not much going on right now because we're all still in <laughs> lockdown so our preamble topic which normally goes on for a good 20 minutes is now down to a tight 11 or less nice. even it's pretty short because stuff isn't being announced so
0: let's quickly go through just a few of our our standard ones just trying to bulk this out a bit one if you don't already subscribe to most trend it's great two henry catchpole three If you haven't left us a review on iTunes or the podcast, player of your choice, please do. It's a big help. We have an intermission coming out uh, next Monday, hopefully. I think before this, we should hopefully have Jeff Musial's one out on the feed. Go listen. That's really interesting. We've got the... uh, Should I tease it? No. No, don't tell them
1: who's on it because it's a really good
0: one. It is. It is. And I know what's in the interview and it was really good. So yes, I'm... (laughs) I'm looking forward to sharing that with everybody. What else? If you like what we do, please tell people, share it, tell us why you like it, tell other people why you like it. Suggest movies.
1: There's been a lot of really good engagement on on Twitter and thank you all very much for getting involved with story stuff. Please do suggest movies. Um, We kind of threw this this show's theme together quite late on uh, and jumped into some Netflix documentary stuff. If there's other... Hidden gems out there that you found, please do let us know so we can review them. I actually found something quite interesting. I'm going to skip slightly ahead to our YouTube stuff, just bringing it in here because this is not something I've I've actually watched yet. I found a documentary on Peugeot's 1984 rally entry, which is on a channel mm-hmm. called VHS Rallies, which I will talk about later. Um, but it's it's like super super 80s everything's fuzzy but that's when Peugeot were absolutely dominating with the 205 T16 and that was just a random find on on YouTube there's got to be more stuff out there like that in fact I know there's a few others that I really want to re-watch and maybe we'll do another show on Formula One documentaries there's there's two I really want to um want us to review one of which is is about the Ford V6 turbo engine they developed in the 80s, which sounds incredibly dry and dull, except it's not, because there's a bunch <laughs> of incredibly famous, incredibly successful people right at the start of their careers that show up, including a very young, very spotty looking Ross Braun. Oh, I love early Ross Brawn. <laughs> He's so... with massive glasses. And, and uh, uh, it's a really interesting documentary on what it was like to try and build a formula one team and program from the ground up in the mid 80s there's another really good documentary which is one from mark stewart's production company which i think there were a series of three or four of them that aired on the bbc a while ago Uh, but my favorite of which is called jim clark the quiet champion which you might be able to find on youtube you may be able to find on iplayer we should review that it's absolutely astonishing it's one of the best documentaries and it is a stark contrast to the film that i'm going to talk about this week (laughs) look at that seamless link uh flawless flawless Flawless, uh which is a documentary on netflix called a life of speed colon the juan manuel fangio story i'm not going to bury the lead here listeners it's terrible (laughs) i've watched it so you don't have to (laughs) Now, I will elaborate. I apologise because my review is probably going to be over in five minutes and Chris is going to dig in deep because he's got a good documentary to talk about, (laughs) thankfully. Um, So so this is a documentary produced by a director who I've not seen anything else from him. His name is Francesco Macri and he produced this documentary about the life of the legendary Juan Manuel Fangio, one of the most successful racing drivers of all time, a man who is often referred to as the best of all time. And when you look at his statistics, which they do in this program an awful lot, you can kind of see why everyone has a point. It basically charts his racing life from a little early age of, hey, he got into... He became a mechanic because he couldn't get into cars, and there's a brief bit about the the his what he did during World War II and then how he became a a racing driver. But it's all very superficial, despite having the involvement from from members of the Fangio family and and famous Mercedes stars, because Fangio has a, a very indelible link with Mercedes. It's lacking an awful lot of depth. You never know why Fangio is as good as he is, why he's revered. They attempt to dig de- into it. There's a chap from the University of Sheffield who had put together an algorithm or some kind of uh, some kind of system where you fed in all the results of Formula One stars. And he then calculated that Juan Manuel Fangio was the best one, equalising for car and era and age and all these kinds of things, which are impossible to do i don't know how it's done they don't explain how it's done but he's kind of in it and and you feel like going well yeah that's nice mate but you haven't explained your working so Mm. i don't take that bit too seriously so i think that's kind of the hook they're trying to get you in with what this really lacks is an overarching story in the way that even mclaren which was a sort of skipped about a bit and was quite shallow even that had a story and and i know in my review which is a few a few episodes ago i kind of criticized it for doing a somewhat slightly weird dramatization of events in mclaren's life it felt like it needed it now this does open with a scene with someone who looks a bit like fangio driving a car but they abandon that pretense immediately until right at the end when they bring it back In the middle, Mm. it's just loads of historical footage, loads and loads of interviews of Fangio, historical interviews of Fangio stuck together. And every now and then, a very jarring jump where they'll talk to some of the contemporary people from Mercedes-AMG Patronus. So you get some interesting stuff from Toto Wolff because he's an interesting and educated man who is aware of the history of the sport. And so he talks very eloquently about what Fangio means to him and what he knows of Fangio and and does drop a few interesting nuggets along the way. Here's a good one. Only five drivers have ever won in Mercedes F1 cars. Can you name them? I'll give you a clue. One of them is Fangio. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Fangio, Rosberg, Hamilton.
1: Bottas. Yep. Nuvolari? No... You should know this because Moss. he's been in the news. Yes, Moss. He's of been course. in the news an awful lot recently. But yeah, it's an interesting fact that it takes a while for you to go, God, only five drivers have won. Because Mercedes, of course, have been engine suppliers for a very long time. Mm. But they left racing after the horrific accident in 1956? Mm, the Le Mans crash. The Le Mans crash. And then that was it at the end of... 55 or 56, I forget which year, that was it for their racing program until they came back in 2011, 2010 even, sorry, buying out the Braun team. Mm. But anyway, yeah, you get some stuff from Toto Wolf, which is quite interesting. Uh, Nico Rosberg is somehow less interesting despite saying more. I'm a big fan of Nico Rosberg. I was a big fan of his racing. He is a very intelligent guy, but he has a habit of saying the word yeah after every half sentence. So, you know, racing is, is a different now than it was then, yeah? And uh, it's all about precision now, yeah? Oh, and uh, it used to be a bit more about, you know, improvisation and sliding last time, yeah? It's a vocal tick that he has, and it annoyed me immensely. I think probably because I'd been thrown out of the documentary by this point. I'm saying that it doesn't have an overarching story. What it also doesn't have is a narrator, and it desperately oh. needs one. It desperately it's trying to do the center thing of telling a story with archive footage, except it's nowhere near as good. It's 1% as good, if that. Because the footage isn't carefully chosen and interwoven. It's huge blocks of archive interview footage of of archive race footage. And yes, that's kind of exciting. But it, because we're so, I guess, modernised looking at it, I'm kind of going, well, yeah, but everything looks really slow and the camera angle's really far away. And honestly, I think it's, yeah, that's on me. Okay? We're also now used to having
0: cameras, not just on every corner, but multiple cameras on every corner, on every car, pointing forward, pointing backwards, yeah. backwards pointing sideways. The
1: coverage that they had is not enough to demonstrate why Fangio is so good. Watching him bimble through the final turn at a track and have a commentator kind of go on about how brilliant he's been is not enough. Um, This is where actually the written word is way better at communicating how hard it was for these drivers. And, you know, go back and read some of the motorsport magazine race reports from the time. Uh, Go and read, there's a great book by Fangio, which I have read, which tells far more about his story. There's so much left out of this in their desire to kind of have the man do all the talking about himself. So... The kind of idea is that they entwine the history and the evolution of Formula One with Fangio's story and they talk about a lot about his achievements. But it's 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 very flat and it's very technical. They leave out some enormous stuff. Um they do mention one crash, but they don't mention any more about any other accidents he might have had. They completely they 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 skip over the fact that he got kidnapped by by anti government forces just before the 1958 Cuban Grand Prix. It's literally I was kidnapped, and then it carries on. This is an enormous event, and you've got to read the book about to find out why they kidnapped him, what happened, the fact that he actually befriended his captors, and it just they've just left any kind of emotion out of it it's so flat and so dry Mm. there are some interesting quotes from the talking heads uh Mika Hakkinen is one of the other contemporary drivers in fact I think he might be the only other contemporary driver not contemporary modern driver rather Mm. to offer thoughts about Fangio more interestingly he offers a a counterpoint to the obvious death that surrounded the sport during Fangio's time. And uh, Jackie Stewart pops up as Jackie Stewart often does in these documentaries talking about Fangio and how Fangio was his hero, which is something I've not heard from Stewart before. I found that quite interesting. Mm. Um, I've heard him tell the story about he and his wife counting up the number of their friends that they'd lost over the course of of a year or, or two years or whatever. And it's still horrific no matter how many times you hear him say, we lost 57 friends <laughs> right. for racing. It's it's terrifying. But hearing Mika Hakkinen talk about being a part of that race in 1994 where Aaron Senna was killed and what he did after that, he, he flew home to his apartment in Monaco and he shut all the doors, closed all the windows, lit a candle and sat there and just thought about it. Um, wow. That's very... Touching and moving, and it's probably the most emotional thing in the whole documentary. And it's not talking about Fangio, it's Mm. talking about a racing driver who is probably the spiritual successor to Fangio's excellence, um, and certainly one who is almost as revered. But (sighs) Yeah, they, they kind of go through his career just step by step. Here, here he is in 1951 winning the title, and again in 54 and 55 and 56 and 57. They spend a little time on the fantastic Nürburgring Grand Prix of 1957, um, but not enough. And this is where having voiceover or, or a narrator or more contemporary journalists or historians bring some context, bring some colour. To it, rather than just having members of the Fangio family and Fangio himself talking about what happened, because they're never going to give you the outsider's view. There's some interesting stuff from Horacio Pagani, who I know is a a, a huge Fangio fan, mm. and he, he talks he, about he named
0: a car after him.
1: Yes, he, he talks a lot about his his love for Fangio, and that's again, it's it's more engaging and more emotional but there's just not enough of that. And Mm. it just desperately, desperately needed more structure, more story and a narration um, to tie it together. And like I say, there are far better documentaries about historical motorsport figures. Um, It ends as it kind of starts with some dry figures. What it does say is that the stats of Grand Prix entered versus one, pole positions and so on are untouchable he won nearly 50% of the races he entered in Formula One, which can never be beaten. Five world titles in an era where everyone died. And you look at the cars and and watching the cars again, they look like, um, they almost look fake, particularly at the early part of his career, where you're seeing these cigar shaped things where the drivers are practically, you can practically see their waist in the cockpit. They're standing, they're sitting this high and and you watch them drive, and they're making enormous movements at the wheel, and, and the wheels are huge. The wheels are huge, and like they say, you know, it's a lot of it is about sliding, and there's art to it. And there's a brief digression about, you know, has the art gone from from Formula One driving? And I felt like there needed to be more rebuttal. Rosberg talks about it a little bit, but not enough. He talks about the precision of modern F one but he more than anyone should know that there an art to driving a modern F1 car because he had to work incredibly hard to get beaten by one of the modern artists of the Formula One car, Lewis Hamilton. And he's noticeable by his absence and he could have lent an enormous amount of depth to this had he been asked or had he chosen to, perhaps he didn't want to do it. But in this way of trying to contrast old and new just doesn't work without enough... Voices, it's it's just not good. And I found myself, I think, halfway through, I put it on pause and and went upstairs to check on my wife, who wasn't feeling very well, and and told her about it. And she said, "You are not going to finish watching it." And and I did finish <laughs> watching it, but I was really I had to grit my teeth to go to keep going with it. So there you go. It's you know, it's free on Netflix if you fancy watching some historical footage. Then give it a shot if you like. But I would say steer clear of this one. I think you're going to have a much better time watching the documentary that Chris is going to talk about, which is called Uppity, the Willie T. Ribs story. Before we get onto
0: Willie T. Ribs, have you ever read those articles in autosport, usually written, I think, by Gary Anderson, where he tells you how exciting a season or a race has been based on the super lap times?
1: I have seen those where they calculate, yeah, they, I don't know. They just, it's a bunch of numbers. And the problem with those is, I just watched the season or, you know, I, I, I've seen it and I can't get excited about numbers like that. I mean, no. when you get hugely impressive statistics like Fangio's wins percentage, mm-hmm. you you're momentarily astonished, even. You can't drag that out into over to, uh, over an hour and a half's worth of documentary, and I think also the emotion.
0: I know it's easy; it's kind of one. Well, it's easy; it's lazy to say, "Oh, he was Argentinian." There's the Latin flair, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you, when you, like you say, you're dealing with something where the mindset to go into those cars and to push them to the absolute limit again and again and again. It's just staggering.
1: Well, that they try, they very quickly gloss over why it is they think that Fangio is able to win a lot because he never really did stretch himself very often to 100%. He kept th- plenty in reserve and he was very kind to the car and he knew, because of his mechanic background, he knew how hard he could push the car and on some occasions he'd, he'd actually rebuild bits of the car to give his mechanics a rest. That stuff's quite interesting, but it's it's... It's a flash. It's there in a minute and gone. Mm. And then there'll be another five minutes of interminable race footage with period commentary over the top or another 10 minutes of the same interview from Fangio from heaven knows when, mm. uh, sat behind his desk. I just didn't engage with this. It, it didn't have, it didn't pull you in and, and it didn't have the story to keep you engaged. There are far better ways to learn about a driver as great as Juan Manuel Fangio just don't watch this. Um
0: yes, in quite in quite some contrast to that, Upper T, the Willie T. Ribs story. I saw a trailer for this on Netflix, which I don't think really did it justice. I'm not gonna go into that too much here because this is the story of Willie T. Ribs, a African American in the US whose grandfather started a plumbing business and he instilled in all of his kids that if you are black and you want to get ahead, you don't have have to be as good as other people, you have to be better. His children, Willie's parents, were then brought into the family business, they had a bit of money, but they still had this ethos, and his dad started car racing, and... Because they had money, he could afford to go and, and do a bit of sort of what we probably now consider club racing. Willie, however, decided he was going to go for it. Scraped together all the money he could in 77, came over to the UK, did a season of Formula Ford, um, won the championship, ran out of money, caught Bernie Eccleston's eye, flew home. Everything I've just said is the first 10 minutes of a 100-minute documentary. There's a lot going on. Um, so he races in England, gets some success, gets a bit of attention, but there's no more money. There's nothing else, else happening. So he goes back to the US, and the documentary really picks up going through his career year by year through uh, GT Grand Am, through IMSA, through NASCAR races uh and eventually into IndyCar um what's really i think telling about this documentary is that he comes so he he comes back to the US he has no money and he gets an offer to drive in NASCAR event in South Carolina and because he's black and because motorsport was then, and is still largely, but was very much then a white sport. And NASCAR is the Southern racing series in a very, very segregated, not legally segregated, but in a very sort of white and black world. He loses his drive because he got death threats. The promoter got death threats. He continually goes through this documentary... With blistering speed, he wins in so many series. He wins in great cars. And he talks about the people who give him an opportunity, give him backing, give him a leg up. And he talks about the times when people didn't react well to him for one reason or another. Some of it is overtly racism. So trying to do a NASCAR race in Alabama as a black man in the early 80s, it's very, very clear why. And the T of the title actually refers to a nickname that he gets, which is uppity N-word. And he was called that by people in the paddock. Even other people, like his family in this documentary, when they're doing a talking heads now, won't use the word. He will. He absolutely owns it. And he says, it fired me up. I was going to go faster. And so the documentary, as it goes through season by season, has a lot of TV footage, has interviews from the time. It has a lot of race footage. Um, that then mixes with talking heads from him from his brother from other people who were in the sport at the time or have been around the sport so you've got uh, people like Alan Sir you've got um David Hobbs you've got um I was going to say Rick Walker it's not Rick Walker what's his name Derek Walker that was it Alan Sir Jr people that he's raced against but also people who can provide insight into what it takes to win at those levels. And then at the middle of it all, you've got Willy himself, who is engaging. He's charismatic. He has a look and a demeanour that you could almost imagine, like Dominic Toretto's older brother. He's quite kind of stocky, bald, but he talks in very clear, defined sentences with a point to each one. And he actually talks early on about meeting Muhammad Ali and he adopted the Ali shuffle. So when he won a race, he'd stand on top of the car and he'd do the Ali shuffle with his feet. And it's really clear from the way he talks, both in in the way that he talked in interviews, which I think was quite unusual at the time. You know, he would say he's the greatest. He would say he's the fastest. He'd say that other people were scared to come and race against him. And even... Now he still has a bit of an Ali sort of phrasing to what he says. And in fact, as the film goes on, he actually works with Don King, the boxing promoter. Um, there's an interesting point where he gets, because some of the races that he did in the US were support races for F1, he meets Bernie Eccleston, who's running uh, Brabham at the time. And he has a Brabham test. And he goes to Estoril. There's a photo of him in the car with Charlie Whiting, who was the team manager at the time. And he goes out and he performs. And in the end, Olivetti, the sponsor, say, we want an Italian driver who, would have, who was Elio De Angelis, and then when he got killed, uh, Riccardo Petrese. So there's this kind of constant flow through the film of a guy who was very fast, very adaptable, had that feel, that sense of a car so that he could jump into it with minimal testing, start going quickly. But then there were cases where something didn't go right. It might be mechanical. It might be a sponsor thing. Sometimes it might be racism. Sometimes the documentary insinuates it might be race-related or it was race-related without... Anything being said, and I found it incredibly engaging. I found it very affecting it really kind of stuck with me more than I was expecting simply because it it reminded me actually a lot of the Michelle mouton bits of heroes, which again was a film that I didn't really gel with as a narrative but It had that sense of somebody trying to overcome. And because he's so good at articulating what his mindset was and how he coped and how he hung on for each successive opportunity, it's really a great portrait of a person. And I kind of want to say inspirational. I don't know if inspirational is perhaps the right word or if I say it, it might be taken slightly the wrong way. But to have the resilience that he had, to have that mentality of, I've not just got to be as good as everybody else, I've got to be better, I've got to be able to compete, no matter who I'm racing against, was really, really fascinating. The film itself is made by Adam Carolla's production company, Chassis Media. And in fact, it actually says at the start, an Adam Carolla production. That's a good name for a media company. Well, it's C-H-A-S-S-Y... Oh, okay, I'm less interested now, because
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, the other big
0: f- title that they've made recently is the 24-hour war, which perhaps slightly unfortunately I watched pretty soon after watching Ford versus Ferrari, and what I found with 24-hour war was that it lacked a humanity, it lacked a warmth, it, it was it was almost. Getting towards it wasn't as bad as the Fangio documentary you just mentioned, but it was because it was kind of removed from the subject. It was trying to tell a story from the past in a kind of unbiased way and trying to sort of be very fact driven. Whereas with this, it has a much, much stronger emotional core, and that is all, Willie. You wonder, like, what would have happened? What if it just had that shot? What if those companies had given him the backing? Um One thing that I didn't realise going into this, because the image that was on the trailer was of him in black and white slumped in a car, a photograph, I thought this was going back to sort of 50s eras, but it's not. It, like I say, it starts in 77 and it runs through the 80s uh, and even early 90s. I mean, it touches on him driving IndyCar in 93. And... Because of its contemporariness, because it's so contemporary, one of the pundits that it has is Marshall Pruitt, who was working, I think, as a mechanic at the time and is now obviously journalist, podcaster, photographer. And he is brilliant at the exposition. I think he really helps take you from... Just racing people talking about racing, into something that will be much more accessible as a human story. Much more... Um, he just adds a depth. He, he can tell you why a Grand Am car or an IMSA car is so different to an Indy car. He can really describe what it must have been like going from an 800 horsepower GT Grand Am car. And by the way, if you don't know what a GT Grand Am car is, it doesn't matter. You can see from the way that they drive... It's kind of silhouette racer, you know, huge horsepower, big engine. But going from that to a four-cylinder turbocharged BMW Brabham with 1,500 horsepower or whatever, in Europe, in a completely different environment, Marshall really does help bring you as an audience member through those transitions and to help you understand The difference in things like downforce or the difference in setup between one car and another or even what the expectation would be. So, you know, his ability to get into a car and within two races be on top of it where another driver might take two years to get on top of the tires and the handling and the suspension setup and all of that. The conclusion of the film, I won't go into it. Because there is a, a great build-up. There's a great kind of final race that they really focus on. It's not the end of his career by any chance, but it, there's a great kind of build-up. Um, and it really adds a nice sort of dramatic tension to the whole film that doesn't really let up. There's always another thing. There's, there's no lull that you sometimes get with some documentaries. So because he's changing series, because he's changing cars, because characters in his life are becoming more or less important for one reason or another. Um, There is, there is one thing that I will mention, which, which at one point in the film, Bill Cosby decides to take his case and to help him become a bigger driver or the driver that he perhaps should have been. And There's a slightly obvious moment where they, where Marshall Pruitt has to do this voiceover where they kind of go, This was before we knew the crimes that he'd committed and kept hidden for so long. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, even that aside, you know, him qualifying for the Indy 500 is just, it's really, really well edited, it's really well structured. And it really has, again, that emotion drives more than anything else. He talks about, and this is a very Ali thing, you know, he he's going into qualifying going, I was driving and I had my right foot as far as it would go. And I had my left foot on top of my right foot because I decided I was not going to lift. And if I died, they were going to find my feet crossed in the cockpit Because I wasn't going to lift. (laughs) That's awesome. He he, he is just—he's that sort of guy, and and the fact that he, you know, he's so engaging, and you know, I could watch more of him talking. I could watch more about him, about his life. But the documentary kind of gives you as much as you would want. It doesn't kind of overstate its welcome like some. It doesn't get too much into the he said, she said. He is a really fascinating character. And also at the end, over the credits, they do a photo slideshow of other great black motorsport drivers. And you realise it's a very, very, very short list. As I said, it it, it stuck with me and I, I want to call it inspirational. I think that there are too many long shadows... Over it to be to to really sort of come out of it with a spring in your step but it's a it's a brilliantly made documentary it's very thought provoking it doesn't hide what it was like in those paddocks at those times. it doesn't hide the internal politics of what was going on within a team if somebody didn't like him or if the media wanted to spin a story against a black driver a certain way. They were absolutely open about here's what happened, here's why I did what I did, and here's what the press coverage was. And it, it, it's really thought-provoking in a lot of ways. On a purely car level as well, it kind of shows a side of the sport that i never really seen before. That 80s IMSA, um, I think I'd seen one of the pictures of the Audi once because he drove, not Audi, uh, Toyota. Because he drove, you know the um, like the new nine three five Club Sport or yeah. the old GT one, where they had the kind of here's the car that it's homologated against, and then here's the fenders,
1: kind of a foot either yeah, side yeah, yeah.
0: sticking out. It's those. It's the ones that, with the cu- with the headlights.
1: Yeah, I I know the Audi Grand Am car, the Quattro. Hmm. Is that no? That's an IMSA car, isn't it? That's not Grand Am. It's IMSA, yeah. Um. That is all I know from that era because it is you couldn't get it on TV when I was growing up and it's still I guess I'd have to go YouTubing for it, which is probably what I'm gonna be doing after this <laughs> podcast. But it it's so outside of my outside of my field of view as a, a fan of European style racing, open wheel racing and mm. rallying, which is what I grew up with. All of this stuff was just I didn't even know it happened. Hell, I didn't even know what IndyCar was until <laughs> uh, maybe I can't. I don't want to admit how late on it was when I started buying Autosport. Let's say, mm. and and there was this other thing and other drivers other, across the pond who weren't Formula One drivers, or Colin <laughs> McCray. And uh, so I, I'm really fascinated to watch this. I really want to watch this because I want to kind of clear my palate of of the sort of disappointment of what could have been a really interesting documentary about a man who is widely regarded as the best racing driver of all time and th- i've heard good things about this documentary from lots of other people so i really do want to check it out and it sounds like this is one that you could watch with your significant other if they're interested in racing or willing to give something something a try
0: yeah i i would say that if somebody doesn't have a great knowledge of racing, it won't matter. As as I said, Marshall Pruitt makes such a good job of explaining what's going on, explaining the differences. The story is not so much about the racing. There's a bit about why somebody was faster than another or what a mechanic might have done to a car to make it faster or slower. But the heart of it is always about the people. It's always about why this person didn't like that person. It's how Willie mentally approach the racing. All of these things are universal. So yeah, it it's a it's a good film for people who have, you know, they don't have to have a, a, a nerdy spotter level of, of knowledge about racing. If as long as they know what a, a driver is <laughs> and a race is and they're interested in people, yeah, it would be a great film to watch with friends or, or family.
1: Mega review. That's that's made up for my appalling review of a fairly <laughs> cruddy documentary. So you can, o- you can only work with yes. what you have given. sorry about that, everybody. Um, <laughs> Chris has
0: done a much better job. Speaking of watching stuff online, our YouTube picks of the week. I've gone for a channel that we've mentioned in the past,
1: Rattarossa. I thought you'd go for this. I very nearly went for this, and then I saw you'd got it in the notes. <laughs> ah, damn it, he's taken my one. So for those of you who haven't seen Rattarossa,
0: I can't remember the guy's name now, sadly. Um, Scott. So that's his name. It took me a while to get there. Scott. Scott. Scott from Rattarossa What he does is buys Ferraris and works on them himself. That's his his thing. Um, and he does it very well, and he's converted, I think we said on a previous episode, we've conver- he's converted
1: 360 into a Challenge Stradale, et cetera, et cetera. He's got a 380 he's working on himself, quite apart the from the, mm. yeah, the titular Rattarossa. He's he's interesting because he's got to be one of the only people in the UK doing this kind of thing. Mm. We are very much, or official Ferrari service history, you must never <laughs> drive it, take it out and wipe it with a diaper in the UK. The Americans yeah. are a little more um, do it yourself with Even with Ferraris, because um, uh, the reason I heard about Ratarossa was because he flew over to help out Sam Crack with his Ferrari 360, which is this gorgeous uh, British racing green colour and has any number of problems that uh, keep surfacing. And that's how I found out about Rattarossa and went and watched his videos. Also, I don't know if you've seen, going on a complete tangent, the
0: latest, I think, Hoovy's Garage video... Where he talks about all the work that's gone
1: into his Ferraris. Yes, he sold he sold his uh, the the Car Trek three hundred and sixty. Yeah, to a mechanic friend of his, and uh, yeah, there's 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 definitely the the figures he was quoted for fixing things uh, versus the figures that actually ended up being spent. If you are mechanically (laughs) inclined um and i think like 360s are that sweet spot now where they're getting to be old enough there's no point taking it to the ferrari dealer Mm. if you know a really good independent who can do the work correctly Mm. and has the the appropriate tools and manuals and know-how why the hell would you get an official ferrari history for a car that's 20 years old now Mm. rather
0: brilliantly the problems that he had with the 360 during the Car
1: Trek series apparently were down to loose battery terminals. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? The expression <laughs> on his face when he was told that was something to see. <laughs> but anyway, enormous tangent. Back to uh, back to Rattarossa. Rattarossa. So, he's had this dream
0: to restore a Ferrari F40 in his garage and God bless him for that. And one of the the opportunities that he's been looking at is a car in Iraq that I think used to be owned by Saddam Hussein's son.
1: Yeah, it was Uday Hussein, wasn't it? Thank you.
0: And um, he's basically been trying to find it. He's been trying to find people that know anything about it. And over the course of, I think it's about 40 minutes, he talks to people who have actually gone out and seen the car and seen the state it's in. Um, The car is now driving. It sounds like a Bag of spanners. I mean oh, I'm am... It sounds terrible.
1: It was it's heartbreaking hearing it. You've got to go and watch the clip for this bit alone. It's quite a long clip to get through, so mm. perhaps if you're not so invested in, in seeing the, the the ins and outs of of them finding this abandoned F40 in the desert that was covered in sand. And this is the kind of thing you'll have seen these photos on Mm. uh, car throttle or Jalopnik or the kind of every now and then someone does a post on abandoned supercars in in the Middle East. And this is probably one of the more famous ones. Someone has found it and they have, in inverted commas, restored it. They've got it running. (laughs) Yeah. What they've done is wave a hose pipe over it to wash off the dust. They've apparently got some ECUs off of eBay, and then downloaded some torrented Ferrari software onto them, or something. It runs like a bag of spanners. And uh, it, the, in in the video, and apologies, Chris, for taking stealing your thunder. That's all right. The Scott talks with um, another uh, specialist from. Um, what 's the monkey gas monkey garage, garage. that 's right about their you know, his experience with looking at this f50 in two thousand sixteen f f forty sorry looking at the f forty in two thousand and sixteen and and flying over to look at it and figuring out that it would take so much work because mm. so much of it has been ravaged by the desert sand that you 'd have to replace everything i mean everyone knows that f forty if you 're a petrol head you know that the fuel Sell service is something like twenty thousand pounds and has to be done every five years, so that intercooler is missing, ECU's missing, steering wheel missing, wiring, just so much stuff that's not with the car. And hilariously, the current owner of the car wants over a million dollars for this raggedy-looking piece of crap. <laughs> and I found it fascinating that that you know. Scott has called to the internet in his first part of this video to help him find this thing. They found it, and the owner has gone. Yeah, of course you can have it for one thousand, one million, one hundred thousand dollars or whatever it was. And I feel like going. I wouldn't give you a hundred grand. For that thing. <laughs> no matter if it's an F forty or not, it's it's ruined.
0: There's actually an F forty on piston heads at the moment, admittedly wearing some LM bits and pieces. That has been modified, that's currently up for 800 grand. Um, so, yeah, a million for a car that's been sat in a desert for 20 years. Yeah, he's dreaming. <laughs> One thing that I did hear, and I know that we have some Ferrari aficionados, shall we say, amongst our listenership. So, as a companion piece for this, Tom Hartley Jr., the supercar dealer did a 40-minute video about buying, he calls it a buyer's guide, about buying a Ferrari F40. And one of the things that he says in this is that he, we all know about the weave. We all know about the fact that you can see the carbon fibre through the paint because the paint's so thin. And one of the things that gets mentioned in this video is that the uh, the Hussein, who owned it, uh, I've already forgotten his name, Um, would apparently have his car repainted on a whim just to match his clothes of an evening, that sort of thing. And as a result, the paint, the red paint on this car, you can't see the weave. Now, according to Tom Hartley Jr., and here is a challenge to all of our uh, Porsche aficionados listening. Porsche aficionados? Porsche, Ferrari aficionados. He says that the later cars don't have any weave showing anyway because apparently the early car owners would sort of be going, why is the paint so bad on this car? And they're like, oh, no, it's really thin. You can see the carbon fibre weave. And they're like, no, no, I want it painted properly.
1: <laughs> uh, you know what? That would probably be my... If I were in the market and they were new, you'd take delivery and go, no, come on, you can do a better job than this.
0: It's <laughs> Is it, old, is it the, old, the old Gordon Murray or Peter Stevens line about... When people said, like, is the um, McLaren F1 a challenger for the Ferrari F40? He went, no, nobody at
1: Woking can weld that badly. <laughs> yes. This is the thing about the F40. I know people love it. I And, and you know, Scott's very eloquent in this video about his, his love for the F40. I think it's just a shed. I've never liked it. The F50 is, is to my mind, better looking, mm. has far more credible you know, pedigree, is rarer. Mm. um sounds better sounds better the f40 is slapped together out of bits of angle iron and kevlar and i mean you look at even looking at this video of a completely trashed one but you look at the interior and go this has been made out of bakelite and things you found at the back of the drawers Mm. and then you stuck an absolute you know don't get me wrong i think that the engine is is what you're paying for and the rest of the car comes for free which is that classic ferrari cliche <laughs> the engine in the f40 is the special bit everything else about it is dog shit there was
0: a great video that chris harris did with rob hales where he was talking about driving i think um oh what's his name not tony mason he's the rally guy uh, drummer pink floyd nick mason nick mason driving his f40 and he said he was coming out of club at Silverstone, the little left right chicane, and then it kind of opened on the exit. And he said he would get wheel spin as the boost came in on the exit. So he tried it a gear higher. He said, All that happens when the boost came in, the wheels were just spinning even faster. But I'm sure I read somewhere, and I'd love to be able to reference exactly where I read this the chassis rails on the back of an F 40, if you get rear ended, can get bent and they need to be replaced. And if you go to Ferrari and say, I need some bits for a Ferrari 40 chassis, they will charge you a lot of money. And they just happen to be the same dimensions and material as a Sainsbury's shopping trolley of a certain era. And apparently (laughs) it was not uncommon for um, shopping trolleys around certain Ferrari specialists to go missing... Um, and find their lives being donated to be in the rear end of a Ferrari F40 sort of
1: post-rebuild. I hope that's, that's a fantastic true. story. Matt, if you're listening, as our resident <laughs> friend who knows an awful lot of things about Ferrari, please verify if that's true or false, because that's a fantastic story. Yes. Uh, speaking, but you
0: of, <laughs> speaking of fantastic things, my YouTube channel pick for this week is Johnny Smith's Car Pervert channel, which... For those of you who aren't familiar with Smith or Sniff or uh, the work he did on Fully Charged or Fifth Gear, Johnny has a long and storied career in car journalism. He wrote for Max Power. He's done TV stuff. And about three months ago, he decided to go it alone and effectively do his content on his channel. Um, I was watching one earlier today where he goes round a company called Swindon who make touring car engines and they do prototype bits for manufacturers and they do motorsport, they do Formula One and they have a dyno test and they're doing electric uh, conversions for classic cars now and all this sort of stuff. Really, really interesting. He's excellent at what he does. Really, really watchable. But he really goes after the content that he likes he, he does that thing of create the thing that you want to see and it's really it, it's nerdy it's niche hello we are the auto movie podcast this is our world but he does it really well and it's really well made it's really well produced it's really well shot well well worth a listen and if you are so inclined um i think he has a patreon page as well and yeah it's really good
1: really high quality content Mega. I haven't actually watched. I watched his intro video to that channel, uh, but I haven't watched much else of his stuff because at the time I was looking at my YouTube subscriptions going up and up and me not getting through any of the videos and thought <laughs> I can't have another one. Um, but I will go and have a look and see if there's anything to uh, tickle my fancy. From the car pervert. That wait, that sounds wrong. <laughs> so my choice is not actually on YouTube, but it is relevant to what we talked about last show. It's episode one of Motor Trend's hard sell series with uh, Tom Ford. No, not that one. The other one. Uh, who who has very kindly responded to uh, our promoting and tagging him in our socials to say that he doesn't actually drink a lot of pop it's coffee (laughs) Uh, and as somebody who also drinks a lot of coffee i sympathize i went back and watched um, episodes one and three of this show because i really enjoyed the one i'd watched about can a electric car ever be an icon uh, that was episode two I kind of jumped into it because it had a Porsche Taycan in it and I was interested <laughs> to hear his opinion on that uh, I went back and watched episode one which is does the EV supercar really exist and this is a fascinating one because he goes and looks at a bunch of of upcoming EV supercars so he takes a look at the Lotus Evija, which is really I mean it's a beautiful looking thing and they talk a really good game it's, it's so the opposite of what Lotus are known for because it weighs nearly two tons <laughs> and does an awful lot of miles per hour and to 60 and it is the the, exo- the opposite of the Simplify and Add Lightness but it's a spectacular looking thing and it's a statement of intent and I get it and that's very interesting. He goes and looks at the Pininfarina Batista uh, which... Also looks quite dramatic, although the drama is let down slightly by what looked like a towing strap that was tucked underneath <laughs> the car, uh, which is parked up in a yard. I couldn't stop looking at it once I'd seen it. Sorry, Tom. Uh, what else? He goes uh, to meet, uh, or he goes to visit Rimat's as well, uh, who I think are probably top of the pile when it comes to EV supercars, mm. and it, they drive away in a in a demo. Not a demo, like a a pre-production vehicle of their their next generation EV supercar. And that's fascinating because you get to hear the ethos of what Rimats are about and why they started the company and 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 so on. And it's that's very, very engaging. And I find it interesting considering can it ever be a supercar? I don't know which side of the fence I come down on. I'm still struggling with the concept of an EV sports car. They just weigh too much. For, for me and the only way they can make it exciting is to give it mega mega power which makes <laughs> it super exciting in a straight line uh, but there's they still don't have the emotion I'm, I'm sorry but you know tyre roar and occasional gear whine and <laughs> stones hitting the underside of the chassis it does not make your brain melt and your blood sing in the same way that a GT3 engine revving to 9000 RPM does so there's that to kind of reconcile but the show itself, really, really good. Episode three is about whether or not motorsport is going to work when it's silent, which kind of goes to that thing of not having any sound. And there's obviously um, a look at what kind of EV motorsports there are. There's there's a, a quickly glossed over bit about the Jaguar E-Pace uh, racing oh, E-Pace series, trophy. which yeah, which has had some poor things written about it online and and doesn't look all that exciting but you know they do go for a drive around a circuit on it and I think in isolation the vehicles are quite impressive I think a racing series full of them less so because who wants to see SUVs racing like that when they're super heavy and not especially quick go watch trophy trucks way better <laughs> And I know that's reductive and missing the point entirely, but that's the thing. You've got to compete with those series. There's some more interesting stuff talking about the Ford drag racing Mustang that is an EV going up against a full-on petrol Mustang. And and the interesting features of that, where they both look very, very similar, but the, the team that are tuning the Ford EV drag racing Mustang are, are working with so much instantaneous talk that it just keeps doing wheelies well you know a lot like we all you know you remember that from your radio control cars of the same have the same problem that's why the lunchbox has a little wheelie bar on the back and they're working out how to get that dialed in and interestingly i found that they've got a gearbox in that which which helps and kind of manage the talk i found that very interesting it's really worth going and watching this because it's very even-handed tom ford's a petrol head i think you've talked longer and more glowingly about this than you did the Fangio documentary. Well, yeah, because this i mean, this is 22 minutes long. Each one of these is about 22 minutes long. And they're just way better made. And they're far more interesting. There's a storyline to these. Like, literally, there is. They're, they're constructed to tell a story, to ask a question, and then attempt to answer it. And the Fangio documentary didn't do any of that stuff. <laughs> So yes, I have whittled on about this quite a lot, but I, again, as ever, you know, Motor Trend are doing some good stuff. This mm-hmm. is really worth watching. There's an episode out now, episode four. Again, you have a proper adventure with no plug-in in sight. And that is the thing that gets me about EV sports cars is if I wanted to do my annual trip up to the Highlands, I just can't do it in an EV. You cannot do 300 miles in a day of hard driving and be certain of if your range drops, finding someone with a plug that you can charge the thing up. It's it's just not going to happen, and that's the kind of thing I like doing with 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 my weekend car. So that's that's the thing that EVs are are going to really struggle to to get over until someone invents a. Fusion battery or something, <laughs> or Mister Fusion for that matter. Oh, very good! But there we go. That's that's my recommendation. Go and watch Hard Sell. I think we said that there. We we tweeted out that there's one of the episodes is available for free. Mm. online so have a look at the auto movie pod on twitter to uh, find the link to that uh, but yeah go check it out and if you like it get a motor Trend subscription uh, the channel i want to recommend is something i found i mentioned earlier on vhs rallies uh, which is i guess a year or so old and it's just full of exactly what it says in the title rallies that have been recorded on vhs and now someone mm. is digitizing them and there's tons of stuff. Let me read you out some of the things. You could watch the 1983 Lombard RAC rally. There's a 22 minute clip of that with an Audi Quattro on the front. Ooh, <laughs> very nice. The 1995 Rally du Rouge, which has what looks like a Renault Clio in silver on the front. Uh, there's loads of 205 T16 action here. I keep seeing, oh, I can see some uh, Tommy and Mitsubishi rally arts. 20 minute clip there. There's Footage from the 1998 Focus WRC launch, 1988 Race of Champions. Is that the one that had Martin Brundle in it? Oh, I might have to watch that. Ooh. There's loads of good stuff here. There's loads, if you like rallying, and if you, particularly if you like 80s rally cars, the sort of the era of crazy Group B and then the beginning of Group A, you're in for a treat here. This is a, a proper rabbit hole that you could go down. Um, I'm going to have to come back to that Race of Champions one for sure. But yes, I I haven't really dug into this. I've had the tab open in my browser as a must-watch when I get some time. And uh, I think I'm going to have to dig into this because there's some great, great great-looking stuff. It's all super old. There is one that's got a thumbnail with the old Top Gear Rally report... (laughs) Um, oh. title card on it which means it has the amazing uh propaganda track on it which always makes me think of drifting sideways uh <laughs> so yes check oh, that it, out
0: if that has uh nick berry doing the presenting as well
1: send me the link i'll be very very i'll happy. have to look at it and see but yes that's that's my recommendation so what we have learned today is that evs are more interesting than one and that uh, <laughs> Early 80s rally cars are more interesting than EVs. Uh, You should watch the documentary about the Willie T. Ribs story. You should also have some ribs while you're watching it because I'm kind of hungry. yes. And then go and read Marshall Pruitt's Guide to Driven (laughs) to save yourself from watching it thank you all very much for listening to us drivel on Uh, we all hope you're very safe and well do leave us a nice review if you want and we will be back next time with hopefully two really good movies (laughs) see you next time everyone